Well, you can join me in opening your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark. We're continuing our series through the Gospel of Mark, taking a paragraph or two at a time. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can grab one under a seat nearby. And in those Bibles, the Gospel of Mark in chapter 12 is on page 848. And let's uh, pray before we uh, consider this this morning. Our Father, we thank You for Your Word, and we thank You for Your presence by Your Spirit with us so far this morning. And we pray that You would open our minds to understand Your Word properly, open our ears to hear what You are saying through this text, and we pray that You change our hearts in whatever way You need to and in the ways only You can. pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, what are the two topics that we are told not to bring up around the Thanksgiving dinner table? Religion and politics. Why? Because they'll get you in trouble, especially in a politically charged climate like ours. If you want to stir the pot up, bring up God and government, right? And yet, our culture is immersed in political conversations, and the conversations are often not going well. We all feel tension. We feel anxious about our political climate. Some of us may feel angry at times. Some of us, many of us are confused because so much is changing so fast. We see the divisions. We feel the strain in relationships. Some of you might be feeling that this morning strongly. Maybe you're silent oftentimes because you feel like it's unsafe to speak what you think in the presence of certain people. You've mentioned your view before on one issue, and you were labeled and quickly dismissed and misunderstood or um, regarded as incompetent. Add to this how the culture is currently viewing many evangelicals on the topic of politics. Evangelical is supposed to be a theological term. It means we're gospel people. That's what it's supposed to refer to, but for many, it's come to a way of voting on political issues. And some of us see how Christians have been talked or have talked about politics, and you can feel embarrassed to be associated with them. It can be embarrassing. I don't want to be associated with the way some professing Christians talk about politics. And the most extreme examples are picked up in the media, which makes it even worse. So what do we do? Well, one thing we always need to do, among many, but at the start of it and all throughout, is to carefully listen to Jesus. And that's what we're going to do this morning. Jesus gives us some profound guidance with just one sentence. We could read what he said quickly and move on here, but what Jesus says in just one sentence, two phrases, is incredibly relevant to us today. With this sentence, Jesus gives us the foundation for a Christian view of politics. doesn't say everything, but it does say something profound. So Mark chapter 12, verses 13 to 17. And they sent to him, these religious leaders, Jewish leaders in Jerusalem, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and some of the Herodians to trap Jesus in his talk. And they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, 
for you are not swayed by appearances, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? But knowing their hypocrisy, he said to them, why put me to the test? Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. And they brought one. And he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus said to them, and here's the sentence, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. You may be familiar with what Jesus said there, and it can lose some of its force, and you no longer marvel at what he said. One of the goals this morning is for us to marvel at what he said. So we're going to walk through this story, and then we'll think through six principles from what Jesus says here about God and government, and then five implications for how we engage with politics. And as we start into this text here, let me say at the outset that this is not going to be comprehensive. We'll just be looking at one text here, so I'm not going to say everything you might hope I would. I'm not going to say everything I might hope I would. We'll just focus on some principles and implications from this text. And this is also one of those sermons where I wish just there was like a banner in front of me or on the screen behind me that just says, don't hear what I'm not saying. Uh, because whenever we talk about politics, it requires nuance. And part of what makes political conversation so difficult is that you say one thing and someone thinks, oh, so you mean this. And you're like, I do not mean that. I did not say that. I wasn't thinking that. I totally disagree with that, right? Because we often just create these big categories and we assume if you say one thing, that you're part of this big group with a bunch of opinions that all get lumped together, and usually you think that person's crazy, right? So don't hear what I'm not saying, and in general, when talking about politics with one another, don't hear what someone else is not saying, right? It's a way of loving one another here. Um, so the story, six principles, five implications. All right, the story. Jesus Enter Jerusalem in the final week of his ministry. If you've been here for a few weeks, we've been seeing what's been going on there. He is making provocative, symbolic statements showing that he is the king who's arrived in town here. He's been confronted by the leaders of Israel already. They're asking him questions to try to trap him in his words, but every time Jesus gets out of the trap and confounds them, and just from even a human standpoint, Mark chapter 12, Jesus is brilliant. He's brilliant. So here's Israel's leaders. They're sending the Pharisees and Herodians to confront Jesus. Uh, we don't know uh, for sure who the Herodians are, but they're probably people who were viewed as somewhat of a compromisers who are aligning with Herod. And then you're the Pharisees, people who likely would not have liked each other due to each one another's views on religion and politics. But here they have a newfound unity. They're coming together across their divides in opposition to Jesus. And they have a question for him, but first they butter him up with flattery. Verse 14, they came and said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion, which is interesting because they don't know he's true, otherwise they'd be following him. And it's interesting that they say he doesn't care about people's opinions, but the very reason why they don't want to arrest him is because a public opinion would be against them, right? So, for you're not swayed by appearances, like we are, but truly teach the way of God. So they don't believe this. 
And then they drop the loaded question, is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or should we not? So Caesar, originally Julius Caesar's name, after him then the name was used to refer to later Roman emperors. So they're referring to Caesar as the Roman emperor and this tax, which was the Roman poll tax. It was an annual tax of one denarius, which would have been about a day's wage at that time. And the Jewish people hated this tax because it isn't just about paying taxes. It's about what the tax represents. It represented the authority and rule of Rome over them. They were not a free people. God had not brought the full liberation they're waiting for. The Romans are in charge. And this tax was first instituted about 30 or uh, 25 years before this conversation with Jesus. And a man named Judas of Galilee led a revolt. And this resistance to Rome continued with a group of Jewish people called zealots. To be called a zealot meant that you were a revolutionary against Rome. You rejected their tax because you rejected their rule. You did not see how it could be compatible worshiping God and submitting to Caesar in any way. So they're trying to get Jesus to take a side here in this charged climate with this charged question. And here's why it was a trap. Because if he said no, don't pay the tax, He's a revolutionary. He's an enemy of the state, and they can just call the Romans in to arrest him and get him killed. But what happens if he says, yes, pay your taxes? Well, then the crowds would turn against him because they hated the tax. The tax was a reminder that they weren't a free people. They'd also wonder, is he going to be our king or not? If the leaders now then can get the crowd turned against Jesus, then the crowd will be okay with them arresting Jesus and killing him. So if he answers no, they'll get the Romans to get him and kill him. If he answers yes, the crowds will allow them to arrest him and kill him. So either way, he dies. It's interesting, right? He doesn't fall into their trap, but it's not that he's not willing to die. He's there to die. But he's going to do it on his terms and his timing. So what does he say? Well, he asked for one of the coins, and then he asked whose image and inscription is on this coin. And they give him the answer. Well, that's Caesar's image on the coin. So then verse 17 is Jesus' answer to their question. Not simplistic, not a slogan, careful, profound, nuanced. Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. So Jesus says, if Caesar's image is on the coin, give him his coin. So this is the logic. If someone's image is on something, it's theirs. Give it to them. But this applies to more than coins, because it's not just Caesar's image that's on something in this conversation. God's image is on something too, right? What's made in God's image? Everyone standing there asking Jesus the question. We're made in God's image. So the logic seems to be, since Caesar's image is on the coin, let Caesar have his coin. But you're made in God's image. So you give your whole self to God. And with this response, Jesus avoids the trap. Everyone marvels, and he laid the foundation for a Christian view of politics. This little two-phrase sentence is like a depth charge that exploded, and then the ripple effects were felt all through history, and we're feeling them today. 
profoundly influence Western culture, and it has a lot to teach us about politics today. It may not seem like it at first, so let's think it through. So let's think about six key principles from this for understanding God and government. So number one, there is a legitimate place for human government. Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. So Caesar is the emperor. He represents the government or the state here, and he is owed something by those who are under his rule. So Jesus says, yes, the government over you is a human authority, so pay your taxes. The New Testament scholar James Edwards made this basic observation. By this reply, Jesus acknowledges the legitimacy of human government. Jesus is rejecting anarchy here. He's rejecting what Judas the Galilean did 25 years earlier, refusing to pay taxes, wanting to overthrow the Romans. And Jesus is affirming a broader vision of the role of government in the Bible. God made humanity in his own image, and he gave humanity authority to order and rule creation. It's the first thing we learn after God creates us in his image. He says, be fruitful, multiply, have dominion. So on the first page of the Bible, God has all authority, and then he gives us authority under him. Our culture doesn't like authority right now, but authority itself does come from God. It's to be used to bring order for the sake of flourishing. And practically, we need authority in order for a society to function well. Without some form of government, we're left with anarchy, and that doesn't work. And history shows us what happens when a government is overthrown and people just want to get rid of leaders altogether. Those who are the loudest about getting rid of leaders are setting themselves up as the new leaders, and they're not necessarily less corrupt than the ones they're overthrowing. So you need some leaders. They're always going to rise up anyways. And so what we need is not no government, but good government. The role of a government is to uphold conditions we need to flourish together. And the Bible's filled with examples of people serving well in government. We see leaders like Moses. We see judges. We see judges like Deborah, kings like David. We see Daniel serving in Babylon. We see Nehemiah serving in Persia. So government can be used for evil, but in and of itself, it's a good thing. Listen to how the Apostle Paul put it in Romans 13. He said this in verse 1, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. So government, in and of itself, is a good thing ordained by God. This doesn't mean that everything a government does is good, but it does mean this is an authority that God has ordained for the world. And, it's, and then what Paul goes on to say in Romans 13 sounds a lot like Jesus here. In verse 7, Paul says, pay to all what's owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So that's the first principle. Second, Christians can live under various forms of government. This is this is, there's not just one form of government that Christians can live under. So Jesus affirmed Caesar's role as legitimate without approving of everything that he's doing in his rule. There are better and worse forms of government. I think that our form of government in America is way better than Caesar's rule was, and this is partly because ours was influenced by many principles that Jesus himself 
taught. Our form of government is in many ways good and wise. We should be grateful, I think, to live in America. But the point here is that Jesus assumes that people can live under Caesar's rule and that Christians should give to Caesar what he's due. So Christianity doesn't require a certain form of government in order to exist. That's not to say that some governments aren't a million times better than others, but it is to say that Christians can be at home in the world, in Christ's kingdom, under any number of human governments. Third, we should be good citizens even if we don't like our government. The Roman rulers, Caesar, they were corrupt and immoral in many ways. And yet Jesus says, yeah, and pay your taxes. He says, give to the government even if you don't like them. Respect the government's authority. It's no sin to pay taxes to a government you don't like or to a government who will do with your taxes things that you wish they wouldn't. So, in other words, be a good citizen even under an imperfect government. Peter would later write something similar, no doubt influenced by things that Jesus said like this very statement. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 13 to 14, he says this, Be subject for the Lord's sake, for the Lord Jesus' sake, which is interesting, right? For King Jesus' sake, the one who has authority over all things, be subject to every human institution whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. One recent example of how we tried to honor this as a church was during the pandemic. The government was giving guidelines for large group gatherings, and one of our principles was simply this. We want to honor the state where we can. Our posture was to submit to the government because they have legitimate authority, and we want to be grateful when they use that in ways that wouldn't lead us to sin. So obviously, other states did have a harder time obeying their government leaders. But this was still a principle they had to work with. You can't just say, we don't like what the government's saying, so we're not going to do it. No, we want to be good citizens, and we want to honor human authority where we, wherever we can. So we should be good citizens even if we don't like our government. Now, fourth... We said in the first principle, the government has legitimate authority, but fourth, the government has limited authority. The government does not have ultimate authority, and this is assumed in what Jesus said here as well. He said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, but give to God what is God, so God's. So we owe the government only certain things. You don't give to Caesar things that aren't Caesar's. So we owe the government certain things, but not everything. So, in other words, what Jesus is doing here is he's undermining the ultimate authority of Caesar. The state has authority, but only so far. So, this leaves room for civil disobedience. For example, if Caesar tells you to pay your taxes, pay your taxes. But in the coming days, and, or coming decades, the Roman emperors would start asking for worship and asking Christians to participate in worshiping them. Well, that's idolatry. They don't have the authority to ask for themselves what should only be given to God. And so, Caesar's not God. You would be giving to Caesar what belongs to God alone. So, here are two statements that summarize what this looks like in practice. If the government commands you to do something, 
that God forbids, you shouldn't do it. And if the government forbids you to do something that God commands, you should do it anyway. Does that make sense? So I'll repeat those. If the government commands you to do something that God forbids, you shouldn't do that. You need to obey God. But if the government forbids you to do something that God commands, you've got to obey God. And you should do it anyway. Because God's the ultimate authority. The state does not have the authority to to lead you to disobey God. We see this in the Old Testament with Daniel's friends who refused to worship the image of the king. We see it with when Daniel was told he couldn't pray to his God, but he did it anyway. We see it in Acts when the apostles were told not to talk about Jesus anymore. They were arrested for sharing the message of Jesus, but Jesus commissioned them to talk about them, so they didn't have an option there. They must obey Jesus. So they even said in Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. Martin Luther King Jr. put it this way in his letter from Birmingham jail. He said, there are two types of laws, just and unjust. I would be the first to advocate obeying just laws. One has not only a legal but a moral responsibility to obey just laws. Conversely, one has a moral responsibility to disobey unjust laws. And then he explained carefully how to identify laws that are unjust. Now, we shouldn't be quick to assume that there's a clash of loyalties between God and government all the time. We can disagree and say that a law or mandate from the government is foolish and unwise and we don't like it, and we can still be good citizens and submit to it if it's not leading us to sin. So we need wisdom to know when loyalty to God conflicts or clashes with loyalty to the government. And when these loyalties don't clash, then we obey the government because that is a way of obeying God. He says obey the government. But when these loyalties do clash, then we have to obey God rather than the government. Fifth principle, the government should ideally reflect God's values. Jesus says, give to Caesar what's Caesar, Caesar's and God, what God, what's God's. That doesn't mean that there's two totally different spheres. You have Caesar and what's his over here, and you have God and what's his over here. As if Caesar has some things and God has other things. No, Caesar has some things. Here's his sphere of influence. And do you know what God has? That stuff and more, right? So Caesar's got a little circle of authority, and it's within the bigger circle of God's authority over everything. So think about it. What if Caesar was standing right there when Jesus said these things? Then Caesar would say, give me your coins, fellas, right? That's my image on those. Pay up. God says so. But then when Jesus says, okay, yeah, give Caesar what's Caesar's, give him your coins, but give to God what is God's, then what's Caesar's obligation? To rule justly, to give himself to God because he's made in God's image. And he and those fresh coins in his pockets belong ultimately to God. In other words, the government is run by human beings who are made in God's image and therefore are God's. And they should ideally then reflect God's values. I want to quote Peter again here, who was standing there and then later gave wisdom on this in 1 Peter chapter 2. So here's 
this statement again in chapter 2, verse 13. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those, and this is the key phrase, to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. That's the government's role there. Punish those who do evil, praise those who do good. Where do you get standards for that? How do you determine what's good and evil? Ultimately, you should get, that, get these from God's standards. He, he is the source of all true goodness. Now, this doesn't mean that the government should establish a state church. You can't and should not compel belief with the sword. But governments should reflect God's wisdom because God's wisdom is what leads to flourishing. As Christians, we don't just say, well, the government and culture are just so terrible, so just leave them alone. Let's read our Bibles. No, reading our Bibles leads us to recognize that politics is this group process of contributing to one another's flourishing, and so we have to be engaged at some level. We want to promote flourishing. People that we elect, platforms that they run on, policies that they implement, other people they appoint, all of those things have real consequences and can lead to real good or real harm. So we should want to see the government promote what is true and good and beautiful. And it's not wrong then to see, to want to see God's values at work and taking root in politics and cultures. Because the truth is someone's values, someone's definition of good and evil is going to be at work in a culture either way. There's no valueless culture or moral law. The question is always whose values are going to be enforced and whose values lead to real flourishing. Last principle, our greatest loyalty is to God. So Jesus said that we give Caesar the coin because his image is on it, and then he says you give to God the things that are God's. And what belongs to God here? Well, who's in God's image? Every one of us. And so Genesis 1 says that humanity is made in God's image, and so we're made by him, and we owe him everything, which means that our greatest loyalty is not to any particular government, but to God. Our whole lives are to be given to him. Everything good that we have is an expression of his grace to us. And so Jesus calls us to live our lives for him. And what Jesus is going to do within just a couple days here makes this even clearer because he alone is the one who gives himself fully to God the Father. And on the cross, he died for our sins and failures to honor God with our lives. And then he rose again and pours out his spirit so we can be united to him by faith and transformed and renewed into his image. And so now then, we don't just give ourselves to God because we're made in His image. If you're following Jesus, you give your life to Him because you are bought with a price. You are not your own. He purchased you. And so now we gladly give our lives to Him. So those are the six key principles. Don't hear what I'm not saying. <laughs> now let's walk through five implications for engaging politics. So just, those are principles. Now here's some implications. One, understand your government. Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's. But here's the issue with us, right? Who's Caesar? Caesar isn't in charge of us anymore. We have a different government than those whom Jesus we're talking to did. 
we have a different government and authority. So whatever nation you're a citizen of, you need to figure out who's in authority. And then you need to figure out what you owe them. Who, who are you rendering something to? And what do you need to render to them? So who is Caesar for us now? Well, if you're a citizen of America, then it's our government here. And we have a unique one, a democratic republic. We have various representatives that are elected and given a measure of authority. We have the ability to vote and contribute to the government of our nation. We have the ability to serve in local, state, and national leadership. So this is a call, in other words, and I think this is a clear implication. In order to obey Jesus here, render to Caesar what Caesar's, we have to learn civics. Like, that's an implication. We have to understand whatever government we're a part of. We have to learn what it means to be a good citizen wherever we are. And this has been neglected in the past generation in schools and homes, in America at least, in most places. And so those of you who are young, you probably have to take extra intentional steps to figure out what kind of government we have because it's way more complex than talking points um, in political commentary and news sources often imply or indicate. And parents, you have an opportunity to help your kids understand what form of government we have and therefore what we owe to that government in obedience to Jesus. So let's understand your government. Second, think with wisdom. One mark of immature thinking is a tendency to oversimplify things and think in terms of false dichotomies. So what, that's what these leaders are doing with Jesus. They ask him a question that required an oversimplified either-or answer. And it was a trap because the answer would be too simplistic and therefore misleading. So Jesus avoided a simplistic false dichotomy, and instead he gave a nuanced answer. That's a model for us. I mean, we see a lot of simplistic slogans get traction today. I'm not going to call them out here, but we need to make sure that we're thinking through things well. Often slogans make a true point, which is why they resonate. We're like, put that on a t-shirt, put that on a bumper sticker, this is my answer, and I could say a few here and maybe get swaths like, oh yeah, I like that, right? Because at first it kind of resonates, but then when you think through it longer, you're like, well, wait a minute. Uh, that seems to be misleading or neglecting this piece. Or are you saying then, you know, it just leads to misunderstanding. And so we need to be nuanced and careful to say one thing that's good can be good, but it can lead us to oversimplify. So we live in a, under a unique form of government. We have a complex process for electing leaders. It's not perfect. The whole system is built on partnership and compromise. So it's always going to require nuance and careful thinking. I mean, by the end, hardly anyone is going to say, that's exactly the candidate I was hoping for from the beginning, right? No matter who you're going for. It's complex, so we need to be principled, and we need to be strategic and thoughtful. So one way also to think about thinking wisely about politics is to diversify your inputs, diversify your sources of information. If you only use one news outlet, you are probably unduly influenced by it. And that's true on the right or the left. I, I check across the spectrum. I have a number of apps, and I just click through one, one through the other from the furthest in each direction and across the board, and I can see how every single one of them is slanting things, framing things, manipulating, trying to manipulate my thinking. 
framing something with a headline, and then they give a quote, and if you listen carefully, you're like, well, that wasn't really charitable. I'm sure he went on to explain things a little better than your little snippet there. But if you are prone to just love that talking point and love that news station, you can just end up overlooking those things too quickly, and it's dishonest. And so just diversify your inputs, because getting news info is like anything else. If you listen to one voice, you're pretty confident you're right. If you listen to two... You have no idea who is right and what to think. But if you listen to 10, you're on the edge of wisdom, and you can start seeing through to the truth. So the more diversity in your sources, the better. Third, keep it in its place. Keep politics in its place. Don't overemphasize or underemphasize politics. So some people underemphasize politics and think that it's not important. But this then creates a privatized faith that's separated from public expression. But politics is important, and there's really no avoiding it anyway. Politics is how we work together as a community to promote flourishing. It's one way that we're actually called to love our neighbors because the decisions that are made for our community, our nation, have real impact on real people, and they can cause real good or real harm. And so we can't just say, well, that stuff's not important. Um, it is important. And think about it. If you, if you say something like, you know, we shouldn't talk about that topic because it's political. Or pastors shouldn't talk about that because that's political. But think about this. Just because something is political doesn't mean we shouldn't talk about it. What makes something a hot political topic? I mean, just think, think about anything in your mind right now that's a hot political topic that someone might be be prone to say, like, no, Christians, we, let's not talk about that because it's political. Well, there's usually two things that are true about it. One, it's really important. And two, people disagree about it. That's what makes it political, right? Um, so, think about abortion, gun control, gender, justice, race, so forth. These are really important topics, and we do not have widespread agreement on them. And that's why they become what we refer to as political. But if you are committed to not talking about anything once it gets claimed or termed political in that sense, then Satan has a great strategy to keep you quiet and keep people quiet. Just take an important issue, have some disagreement about it publicly, and then all of a sudden you're quiet about it because now it's something we shouldn't even talk about, right? But the truth is that the Bible is filled with political wisdom, wisdom for how we can work together to how, to how to flourish as a community. So there's no reason to silence Jesus' word just because people don't agree. But we also don't want to overemphasize politics. Some people think politics is the main thing in life. The news is on for hours every single evening. They see everything through a political lens. You can't be friends with people who disagree with you politically. Your social media feed is mainly political coming at you and mainly political coming out of you. But that is not healthy nor a holistic vision of life. The Bible is filled with a vision of life that's broader, includes, but is broader than politics. Jesus commissioned us to make disciples. He calls us to pursue faithfulness in our hearts and in all the roles that we have in our friendships, in our family relationships, in our vocations, and he calls us to witness to him in all of life, so our main allegiance should be to the spread of Jesus' kingdom, 
This should get us excited. This should engage our emotions. So you can be both patriotic and committed to Jesus. You just want to make sure you have your order right in your own life and heart. Because we should be mainly excited about Jesus and his kingdom spreading across the globe among many nations. But we can also have a proper gratefulness and engagement in politics. Fourth, and then we'll quickly wrap up on these last couple. Uh, Watch your words. Jesus says, give to God the things that are God's, which means we give our whole lives to him. And that includes how we talk about politics. It means that humility and love and gentleness, these very characteristics that Jesus embodied and then calls us to follow him in embodying, these are not optional. They're not isolated. It's not like once we talk about politics, then we can start being rude and quote people out of context, and we don't need to be gentle and reasonable anymore or friendly and kind. And in fact, to pursue the fruit of the Spirit— Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and so forth. To pursue that when talking about politics is a political act. Because who are you submitting to in that moment? What are you saying about your speech? You're saying Jesus is king. Jesus is king, and I submit to him, even in the way I have a charitable mindset toward people. I talk reasonably. We don't call people idiots. We don't make fun of politicians. We listen. We pray. We talk reasonably, and that itself is political because we're submitting to Jesus. And then finally, participate with faithfulness. We honor God in how we participate in politics. Jesus says, give to Caesar what's his, give to God what's his, but what if you're Caesar? Well, you're made in God's image, so you govern in a way that honors God. And since we're living in a nation where we can participate in the government, we have a role to play in honoring God and how we participate. So we can be educated to help other people think things through. We can vote wisely to help elect those who are wise to office. You can pay your taxes like Jesus said to do. You can serve in local or state or national roles. You can encourage wise and faithful people to run for public office and serve in public office. And for those who have served or those who are serving, thank you. Thank you for giving your time and your energy, especially in this hard political climate, having heat coming at you, to be able to lead for the good of others. It's no easy task. And so thank you for serving. And let's encourage those who pursue public service. We'll wrap up with this. Jesus came and he launched his kingdom in the midst of the kingdoms of this world. He came proclaiming that the kingdom of God was dawning, And anyone, Caesar included, is welcome to step into his kingdom by grace. We repent of our sins, we trust in him, we follow him as our king, and we learn to live faithfully amidst the kingdoms of this world. And as we do this, we're part of a new kingdom with a new leader we can wholly trust, committed to flourishing in the world. And this king will one day return, and all the kingdoms will bow, and all the kingdoms will crumble, and his will be fully established. And so we'll close with Revelation eleven fifteen. says, when Jesus returns, here's the truth that's going to be proclaimed. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you for you being the source of infinite wisdom. Lord Jesus, we thank you for giving us this infinite wisdom and displaying for us wisdom, carefulness in thinking, kindness in speech, faithfulness, gentleness, love. And we pray that your spirit would transform us to let us be a beautiful picture of what it means to be submitting to you. In Jesus' name, amen.